Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, so uh, great to see you all here this morning. How are you all doing today? Doing good? Thanks for joining us on uh, what I'm just going to call the last Sunday in summer. I'm just going to go ahead and declare that this morning. <laughs> because I, and, and there's a reason for that. First of all, uh, football's starting, right? And so football's starting. I think also there's like all the pumpkin spice things are coming out, right? I've seen that as well. I, I don't know if Costco has their Christmas trees up yet, but I think they're pretty getting close to that. So it's starting to feel like fall. More than anything, though, my wife put up the fall decorations in our house yesterday. And so for me and my house... Uh, now summer is over and we've officially moved in to fall. I'm pretty sure that's not really how that works. I think that the, we still have summer for a little bit longer, but uh, I'm going to declare that it's fall for us at least. So great to see you here on this Sunday. We, you may know that we are in the middle, uh, or we are be in the beginning, I should say, of a new series that we are starting called, Revela- uh, called Revealed, looking at the book of Revelation. We're in our second week. If you were here with us last week, you know that we laid what we called some really important and essential groundwork into understanding and interpreting the book of Revelation. And it's our goal, of course, to understand this book well and to interpret it well. And by well, what I mean by that is that we would understand it the way that God has intended us to understand it. That this is God's word. He's spoken it to us for a reason. He has given us these symbols and all these different things and imagery that we're going to talk about starting today for a reason. And each one of those things means something that he has particularly put into his word that we are now doing the work of trying to understand through this series. And so, I'm not going to be able to rehash all that we talked about last week. We are going to build another level into that groundwork today as we get into the second half of Revelation chapter 1. But if you didn't get a chance to hear the message from last week, I would encourage you to go find it somewhere online. It's on our website. It's on our Facebook page. uh, It's on our podcast. Uh, Another good reason for you to download the app because you can find it on our church app if you're looking for it there. So basically anywhere online where North Bible Church is, you can find that message. And so encourage you to, to take some time to do that if you haven't already. So, but I do want to say as we start into this week, I want to refresh our minds a little bit, give us a little bit of review of really the big three takeaways, the three major ideas that we talked about last week. And remember, we talked a lot about context, the importance of the context of the book of Revelation. And a few things that I left you with last week were this. First of all, the book of Revelation was a letter that was written 2,000 years ago uh, by a man named John, who was one of the early uh, church leaders. And he wrote this from the island of Patmos while he was in exile as a result of being persecuted for his faith. And he's writing this in response to a vision that he receives from God where God tells him, write these words down and then send them to the seven churches of what was known at that time as Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. And at the time, Asia was under Roman Empire, was under the Roman Empire, under Roman rule in the first century. And so one of the things that we talked about is what these Christians were facing, especially those Christians who were in those seven cities in particular, was this constant pressure and on their faith to either, uh, to, because of persecution, or, as, or, or they were being tempted to kind of syncretize their faith with the Roman worship of the emperor that was going on at the time. And so in other words, uh, to be a member or to be a citizen of the Roman Empire in the first century meant that you were encouraged and taught over and over again and expected to worship Rome as basically the kingdom of the gods and to worship the Roman emperor as basically divine, as somebody whom the Romans actually called Lord, Son of God, God, and even Savior at times. And of course, the Christians of the first century had the audacity to say, 
Jesus is Son of God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior, which put them at odds, direct odds, with the surrounding culture that they were a part of. And so that's one thing. Second thing we learned last week is that God communicates this letter, the book of Revelation, through three major literary forms, and each one of those forms has its purpose in what he is trying to communicate and in how he is trying to communicate. So the book of Revelation, as we said, is a letter. That's one form. What we see is that God is the sender of the letter to the recipients of the churches who are there. This shows us God's person, uh, he shows his personal nature, that he sees what's going on with his churches, that he sees what's going on with the followers of Jesus and what they're facing. And so he writes this letter directly to them to encourage them and to challenge them uh, towards greater faithfulness. Secondly, we see uh, that another literary form that we see that happens really throughout the book is what is known as apocalyptic which as we talked about last week does not mean the end of the world, but the word apocalypse in this case in the biblical context means to reveal. And many times in scripture, uh, directly through a dream or a vision that's given to someone who is then told to write these things down as they hear them. And then third, what we see is that this is prophetic. We see prophetic literature in this as well. Not prophetic in the sense that it's purely just about predicting what's going to happen in the future, Although, of course, the book of Revelation presents to us, uh, uh, certainly talks about the future and points us ultimately towards eternity by the end of the book. But most of the prophetic function within the book of Revelation has to do with our living today, challenging us to live faithfully as Christians today in our concrete situation, challenging the first century Christians, of course, to live faithfully to Jesus in their concrete everyday situation as well. And then finally, the last thing we talked about last week One of the major points we talked about as we closed is that we looked at Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 and we saw how we are told that this book is designed to be a blessing. It is designed to be a blessing so that whatever, so that whoever hears these words and whoever puts these into practice specifically are going to be blessed. That's a promise of, that's a part of the promise of this book. And so as we discussed last week, of course, the book of Revelation has a reputation and we saw that even in the, in the, uh, in the dictionary.com definition of how the book of Revelation was joined with like the end of the world and too many times of course especially for those who maybe haven't read the book before uh, maybe even those who have the book of Revelation becomes just about kind of doom and gloom and blowing up and fires and the end of the world and all these other things right and so as a result it's been a case that many people have kept this book at arm's length Even some of the most well-known Christian theologians throughout church history, guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin actually avoided the book of Revelation. It's said that Martin Luther uh, avoided the book of Revelation to such a degree that he ripped it out of his Bible. Now, if you know Martin Luther, he had, a, he, had a, he had kind of a temper and he had a bad habit of doing that, ripping things out of his Bible. Uh, but he ripped, well, the book of Revelation was one of the books that he ripped out of his Bible. Book of James would be another one. Um, but John Calvin actually wrote a New Testament commentary on every book in the New Testament except for the book of Revelation. Uh, for him, he avoided it because he said that he couldn't see Jesus at all in the book. And I think that's going to be a little bit, uh, it might be a little bit uh, strange for us to, to see that this week as we get into really what is a clear presentation of Jesus in this book. And really one of our major points is that Jesus is the point of this book. But Nobody's perfect, but it's at that last point that I really want to start with this week. Personally, last week I asked you guys, what's your reaction to going through the book of Revelation? What is your just immediate reaction? Uh, for a lot of you, you seem to be very excited about that, right? You were excited. Even some of you in this service clapped uh, about your excitement and kind of 
holler a little bit, and then I had others who came to me. It just got super dark in here. Can we pull the lights back up? <laughs> we pull, there we go. All right. All right. So um, uh, anyway, as I was saying, uh, for a lot of you got excited, and then some of you even came up to me afterwards and said, you know what, I, I didn't know how to feel about this book. I didn't know how to feel about this study. When I heard about it, I was a little bit fearful and kind of cautious and, and anxious. And then, you know, after hearing how we're going to approach it this week, I'm really excited to go through this book. So anyway, all I'm saying is that I was surprised, actually, to hear how much excitement there was about the book, but one of the things that I realized is that for many of us, we have never gone through a sermon series on the book of Revelation. That's part of the excitement of this. It's like, I've never actually experienced this before, so I'm actually looking forward to it, because I've always wanted to do it, but but for whatever reason, haven't been able to do it. And look, I'm not, uh, I think think it highlights, really, the fact that even for some of the most gifted theologians and teachers in church history, they have avoided the book of Revelation because it has been difficult at times uh, to interpret. It's difficult. It's a little frightening at points. It can be difficult to teach and understand, especially in an environment like this. Um, If you haven't read the book, here's a sample of some of what we'll see. Look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. This is part of the reason why people avoid a book like this. It says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Now, if you know, uh, if you remember what I said last week, we are going to hit some of these kinds of images. And these images seem to be scary and confusing all at once. But as I told you last week, these are all meant to be encouraging and to give us hope. And you might read a verse like that and think to yourself, how in the world am I supposed to get hope out of that? Well, I promise you by the time we get to it, and especially when we consider the context around it, we're going to see the hope even in a verse and even in an image like this. But the point in all of this is that as we get to there, this book is designed to be a blessing, and that's how we're going to approach it in this series. It shouldn't be ignored. It shouldn't be feared. It shouldn't be thrown aside as like a less important book of the Bible as some kind of, you know, stepchild in the New Testament. Like this is actually a part and a big part of the Bible. And in fact, I would say some of the most important and powerful words that have ever been written down in human history are written in the book of Revelation. And so, yes, it takes some work to get to it. It takes some work to see it. But at the same time, when we unearth it, there is a lot of hope and encouragement in this book. It's immensely powerful. And so I'm not judging anybody who has avoided Revelation despite what it may sound like. I did that for a long time personally, just believing that it was too hard to teach, that it was too divisive in terms of its interpretations, that it was too controversial, and yeah, even maybe a little bit scary at times. But I think after, and I always reasoned them with myself, like, hey, there are 65 other books in the Bible that I could teach on. Why teach on the book of Revelation? I haven't taught on all those other 65 yet. And so there was always another book to go to. But in this case, I'm glad that we're doing what we're doing. Over the past few weeks, as I've gotten into the study and prepared for this series, I've even been more affirmed, I think, in my spirit that this is exactly what we need to be going through at this time. And so I'm excited to get into it. So this week, though, we are going to add another tool to our toolbox of interpreting Revelation. And hopefully, you get an opportunity to see another layer of blessing from this book. Why is it that this book is such a blessing? Today we're going to talk about a general approach to how to interpret the the book as a whole. We're going to talk about something called interpretive keys and an interpretive lens. So how are we looking at the book? The lens through which we look through when we're interpreting the book of Revelation. What lens does God want us to have in place as we read this book together? Last week we talked about, um, of course, 
Apocalyptic literature is kind of being like a peek behind the curtain, that God's given us an opportunity to peek behind a curtain through this book. This week, the question that we're going to try to begin to answer is, what do we see when we pull back that curtain? And we're going to talk about that this morning as John gets into the beginning of the vision that he sees here at the end of Revelation chapter 1. And so to do that, we're going to talk a little bit about symbolism in the book of Revelation. How do we approach symbolism? Uh, What are these symbols supposed to mean? Is there one way that we can look at all these symbols and images and things like beasts and horns and eyes and all these different things and numbers and colors and understand what God is trying to communicate to us? Because there's a lot of directions that we could potentially go with uh, symbolism. But we want to ask the question and answer the question as best as we can, why did God put these symbols here and what exactly do they mean? So today you see on the screen right there, I've just given you a little bit of a crash course. This is actually a chart that's borrowed from theologian uh, Michael Gorman that he put together, but I think it's a pretty reliable chart in terms of, uh, in particular, the colors and the numbers that we see happen throughout the book of Revelation. And I put that up there because as we get into this chapter, you're going to see a few of these pop up. In particular, uh, the color white, the color gold, and the number seven. And so if you're preparing yourself for what we're going to read today, take a look at those and what they mean. You can try to familiarize yourself with this chart as much as possible. We'll put it up throughout the series, so you'll see it again and again um, as we go through these these symbols. But I think one of the things that you'll notice there is there is is a lot of symbolism that happens just with the colors and the numbers within Revelation, okay? So we're going to stay within that. Um, You don't need to memorize that. There's not going to be a test at the end of the day or anything like that, but that gives you a sense for where we're going. So with that in mind, let's read through Revelation chapter 1. Uh, We're going to be in verse 4, starting in verse 4, and continuing through the end of the chapter, which will take us through verse 20. And it says this, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves and has freed us from our sins, By his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on an account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, 
For I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, before we get too much into the awesome symbolism in this passage, which we will in just a bit, I want us to see a few things here. I want us to consider this from the standpoint of the original recipients, in particular John. Remember, John is writing this from the island of Patmos. He actually tells us, I've written this, I'm writing this in the, from the island of Patmos, I am partners with you in the tribulation. In other words, he is experiencing persecution because of his faith, and he's been on this prison island as a result. And so he is writing to these churches who are experiencing persecution as well. Now, if you can imagine yourself in a first century church at that time, or imagine yourself as even John himself in that position, maybe sitting right next to John on the island of Patmos in the same kind of situation, persecuted because of your faith, what, were some, what are some of the things that would come to your mind? In other words, what would you want God to be able to say to you in those moments? I think for some of us, right, we would ask natural questions like, God, are you really going to fulfill the promises that you said you would fulfill? I think maybe for some of us there might be doubts about, is this really worth it? Is my faith really worth it? I realize that if I live out my faith, is Jesus really worth it? Because look what is going to happen to me if I continue to follow him publicly. Knowing that if I just renounced him and just began to worship like everybody else in the world, all of this persecution, all these troubles, all of this fear of what might be done to me might go away. And notice how Jesus faithfully answers all of this just in this initial vision. In the beginning, the first thing that John sees in his vision when he turns around are the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands re represent the church. Those seven golden lampstands, we're told that, right? And so the first thing that we see is we see Jesus' heart for his churches. And then we see right after that the Son of Man who was walking among the seven lampstands as the one who is present among them. And now here's the thing. We see three things as a result. The first thing we see that grabs our attention is the undeniable presence of the person of Jesus. And we see how he's described here in terms that are just, uh, they're worshipful in a lot of ways. Right? They might come right out, and in some cases they do come right out of the Psalms. Really, they come from the Old Testament in some other ways. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But all, look at all these titles that are given to who Jesus is. And I want to read them for you. And, and, and I think what's, what, what, we're, what we're encouraged to do here is to enter into the experience that John is having as he sees as much as possible to see the risen Jesus right in front of him. And all the glory and the worthiness that's provided in all of this is answering that question, Lord Jesus, are you really worth it? Take a look at this. Look at all these titles that are given here. I've made a list of all these, and I want us to read through them. The first one is that we see that Jesus is eternal king. Secondly, that he is faithful witness. That he is the firstborn of the dead. That he is the ruler of the kings on the earth. And so as these titles are coming to you and as we're reading them, imagine what this might do to your faith uh, in the position that John was in or the position that the early church was in or maybe even the position that some of our brothers and sisters today on the earth are in uh, in certain situations of persecution. He has freed us from our sin by his blood. He has made us a kingdom of priests. To him be the glory forever. 
Jesus is coming again from heaven and every eye will see him. He will be the judge of all people on the earth. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the Eternal One, the Almighty Son of Man. We see Jesus is clothed in a long robe with gold, white hair, fire in his eyes, the feet of bronze with a voice of the roar of many waters. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. He has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His face was shining like the sun. And he is the first and last, the living one, alive forevermore. And he has the keys of death and Hades with him. Now, that's not an official list because it's just a list that I made for what it's worth. But that's 20 statements, if you can count them. 20 lines about Jesus that John sees and he records. And just like a lot of the other symbolism in Revelation, it's designed to overwhelm us. It's designed to kind of envelop us in this scene where we're invited to step into what John is experiencing in that moment. And even in that place, uh, we're, we're drawn even further as, we're explain, as John tells us exactly what he does in response. He says he falls at his feet. He sees this vision of Jesus and all of these things. He hears all these things about who Jesus is and his response is just to fall at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. Makes me think about something like Isaiah and his vision in the Old Testament, if you remember that. When he sees the glory of God and he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he falls at the glory of God. You see the exact same thing really radiated from the glory of Jesus in this vision. And the response is calling us to the same kind of response. That yes, he is worth it and our response is to worship first and foremost at his feet. The book of Revelation is a book that is full of worship. We see it page after page, scene after scene. People are worshiping Jesus all the way through this book. It's our first and primary call to worship the one who is worthy. And then the second thing we see, we see the, the presence and the, and, 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 the, and the likeness of who Jesus is. And then the second thing that we see as we draw back a little bit more is that we see that a lot of these titles directly confront the claims of Rome about who Rome is and about who the Roman emperor is. Notice this. I put this, we saw this uh, list last week. These are all the things that we talked about in terms of Rome being an imperial cult that they basically taught to the, their citizens and they reinforced over and over again. That's half of it. We got the other half on another slide. But I want to compare it or really contrast it with the titles that are given to Jesus. Because what Jesus, what's being done here is that um, God is meeting his people right where they are. The things that they're struggling with, the things that they're being told over and over again, the things that's challenging their faith, he comes and reinforces faith in Jesus by confronting those claims of Rome with the claims of Christ. So, for instance, where the Romans would say the gods have chosen Rome, in this vision we see that by Jesus' nature, he is the one who is who was and who is to come, which, by the way, echoes a place like Exodus 3, many other places in the Old Testament. But Jesus is the eternal king and the ruler over all the kings and kingdoms of the earth as the sovereign one. Secondly, where Rome would say that, it's that Rome and its emperor are agents of the rule of the gods on earth, uh, in terms of their will, their salvation, and their presence among human beings, we are told in this vision that Jesus is presented as the faithful witness. The Son of Man, which echoes, of course, Daniel 7 as the one who will judge in the end, but also as the righteous human and the one who speaks God's word with the sword coming out of his mouth. 
So Jesus is the one who has perfectly done God's will and perfectly embodied and spoken God's will on the earth. He is the Son of Man who is God in the flesh and has dwelt with us. Jesus is the one who brings true salvation by saving us from our sin by his blood. Third, where Rome says that they claim to manifest the blessings of the God, things, gods, things like security, peace, justice, faithfulness, and fertility, we see in Revelation 1 that Jesus has given us eternal blessings. As he made those whom he saves a kingdom of priests, as heirs in his kingdom, a kingdom that lasts forever, as Jesus is the firstborn of the dead and has given us the promise of eternal life. For where Rome would say the rule of the gods happens through Rome and is accomplished and manifested in violence, domination, and pacification of enemies and opponents, Jesus has given us, or Jesus' rule is accomplished by laying down his life and by taking the keys of death by his resurrection and ascension where he reigns now and will one day return from heaven, where every eye, even his enemies, will see him as king. Five, where the emperor himself in Rome says that he is worthy of praise, devotion, and allegiance, that he was worthy of having the divine titles such as Lord, Lord of all, God, Son of God, and Savior. Jesus here is the Alpha and the Omega, the Eternal One, the Almighty, the Living One, and Savior. And finally, where Rome said that they presented through Roman rule the imperial age, the long-awaited age, the eschatological age in which humanity's hopes have been fulfilled and will continue forever, we're told that Jesus will judge all of the people and kingdoms of the earth as the eschatological judge and will remove all sin, evil, and death from the earth by his judgment, giving humanity true fulfillment and justice and peace. Now, That is the second piece of this vision that's given to those who are under this consistent and and, and everyday reminder of the claims of Rome. That the claims of Jesus and the claims of the gospel oppose the claims of Rome. And then finally, the last thing that we're shown here is how this all then comes together. Answers this question of God, are you going to do what you have promised that you were going to do? Are you going to bring all of your purposes to bear? And what does that look like? And where are we at in the midst of this story that you're bringing uh, to an end? And if we can zoom back for a minute, what we get here is really an entire rundown of the story of Scripture through the person of Jesus. What we see here is creation, fall, salvation, reconciliation, and redemption. It's nothing less than the big picture of the redemptive plan of God from the beginning to the end that we see all the way starting in Genesis going all the way to the end of Revelation. All of it together. We are created by, in other words, we are created by the Eternal One who saves us from our sin and reconciles us. Then making us His kingdom of priests in this world as His church, indwelt by His Spirit to faithfully live out His purposes. Until He comes again and brings His eternal kingdom with Him, where we will dwell with Him forever. And this is the big redemptive story of scripture and what the churches of the first century needed to hear is they needed to know that Jesus was worth it and that he was with him. They needed to know that he was opposing and, and that he was going to oppose and defeat Rome and really all the Roman uh, representations of the kings and kingdoms of this world. And they needed to know that God was still in control bringing his plans and purposes to bear. And as a result, G.K. Beale says this is the reaction of what the book of Revelation does for us. He says the book of Revelation portrays an end time 
new creation that is erupted into the present old world through the death and resurrection of Christ and through the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. The symbols describing this new world spell out the eternal significance and consequences of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and of the present choices of the behavior of the readers. They are to see their own situation in this world in light of the eternal perspective of the new world, which is now their true home. So when it comes to the end, then, asking this question of how do we interpret the symbols of Revelation, this is our interpretive key. What, we're seeing, what we see here in this chapter, that our interpretive key all flows through who Jesus is. Revelation is showing us who Jesus is and what God is doing to bring it all to a consummation from beginning to end as the entire arc of the story of Scripture is brought together. And I think part of this, right, this idea of living in the new world and, and you know, the result is, just as Beale said, we, we, live in, we live in this world as if we are living from the new world the new creation that God has prepared for us, so that even as this creation crumbles and passes away, that we are people made for a new creation. And so as believers who have been made new by Jesus and dwell by His Spirit, we are people who live from the new world while we live in the old world. And I think this seems to be part of the form of why this book is made up as an apocalypse, is made up of these kind of otherworldly images and symbols. Because it's supposed to remind us of, yeah, this is strange because the values and the beliefs of the new world do not fit neatly into the old world that is crumbling and passing away. So as we encounter all these visions, the medium is really part of the message. Yeah, it seems weird and it seems strange and it seems otherworldly because it's meant to remind us that we are made for another world and that our home is in another world. So when it comes to interpreting the imagery and the symbols of Revelation, we need to look from within this kind of context. First of all, when we see symbols that take place in Revelation, our first question should be, where have we seen that previously in the story? Where have we seen that already, um, already told to us in the story in some way that connects then to the symbol that we see in the book of Revelation? Because as God is bringing all of this together, these initial symbols that we see in Scripture are being then brought to completion in the book of Revelation and brought to fulfillment there. So once we see that the Bible is one story, we might begin to realize that the book of Revelation is tied to a bigger picture. And the keys to interpreting really these otherwise confusing images is by looking back at the Bible first to see where those symbols might have originally occurred. And when we do that, we begin to see clues and hints to these symbols that are presented in terms of them already being set up for us in Scripture and waiting for their fulfillment then in a place like the book of Revelation. So John assumes when he writes these things that most of us would understand this because John himself understood the Hebrew Scriptures well. A lot of the symbolism, by the way, comes out of the Old Testament. A lot of the symbolism we see in Revelation comes out of the Old Testament. And so when John writes these symbols... He typically doesn't give us an explanation in terms of what they mean, and so it's our work that we need to do to go back into Scripture, go back into the Old Testament in many cases, to interpret exactly what's being said. And the more and more we do that, the more we're able to understand how this begins to come to light. Let me give you an example of maybe what this might look like uh, in a, with a modern-day example. Let's throw up the picture that we brought there. If you're a Star Wars fan, you may recognize this guy. Maybe even if you're not a Star Wars fan, you recognize this guy. This is uh, one of the iconic uh, <laughs> bad guys, villains in all of 
uh, cinematic history, Darth Vader. Now, if you are a Star Wars fan, you know, just looking at Darth Vader, for most of us, right, the first thing you think of is Star Wars, right? We recognize him as the guy from Star Wars. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've never seen the movie. Um, maybe you've never heard of it, but it's <laughs> he's from Star Wars. All right, so uh, if you're a Star Wars fan, though, you may actually have, just by looking at this image, recognize a little bit more about what's going on here. In other words, if you know well, you may recognize the movie that this scene comes from, just by looking at a still image. You may, if you're a big Star Wars fan, even know the scene, the scene within the movie that, you, that this is happening in. Uh, you may recognize that it comes from The Empire Strikes Back, uh, which is one of, the, one of the movies in the 15, I don't know how many movies at this point, with all the kind of derivatives that they've made as well. But it's one of the movies in the story of Star Wars. Now, if we pull back a little bit more, we zoom out a bit to this next picture, one thing that you'll begin to see is that, okay, there's a bigger picture here. We see that not only is it Darth Vader, but there's an image also there of another character. If you don't know who that is, that is Luke Skywalker, our hero, right? And so what you've got is you've got Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker in this scene. Now, this is one of the, in my opinion, one of the most iconic movie scenes in American cinematic history. Maybe that's an overstatement. Um, but you may recognize this scene even if you haven't seen the movie in a really long time. Because it's a pivotal scene in the movie. It's a pivotal scene in the whole story arc of Star Wars. It's when Darth Vader says, or it's right after Darth Vader says to Luke Skywalker, I am Anakin Skywalker, and he says, of course, Luke, I am your father. And a lot of us at least know that line, right? This is that scene. Now, if, you, if you're a big Star Wars fan, I didn't even need to tell you what was going on in that scene for you to just look at it. You could imagine the dialogue. You know what comes before it. You know what comes after it. You know why this is important. You know the meaning of all of this and why it is even that Luke is so upset when he hears Darth Vader say, Luke, I am your father. Because usually that, that would be good news, but in this case, it's really bad news. Because, of course, this is the guy that Luke's trying to kill. They just got in a lightsaber fight, and he chopped his arm off. So he's like, you know, you're telling me you're my dad after you chopped my arm off in a lightsaber fight, and it's a whole big thing, right? But the point of it is this, is that just by images, even still images, if you know the story well, you're able to put together things that surround the story. And that's in many ways what this biblical imagery and symbolism is doing in the book of Revelation. God presents this to us through John. John writes it down with the expectation that we would be able to make those connections throughout Scripture. So, for example, well, get this. There are over, uh, or at least up to about a thousand different references or allusions to Old Testament imagery in the book of Revelation. Uh, Bruce Metzger, a biblical scholar, did the work, and he says that out of the 404 verses that are in the book of Revelation, 278 of those verses contain at least one or more references or allusions to the Old Testament. So just by thinking about that, one thing you might realize is that Revelation is telling us how closely connected it is to the rest of the biblical story. And in many cases, it's presenting to us all of those things that were longed for in the Old Testament that God promised he would do are coming to completion in this book. God is being faithful to what he promised he would do even thousands of years prior. One thing becomes clear, though. If you see an image or symbol, really, our first reaction should be interpreting that symbol within context. Where do we see that elsewhere in Scripture? For example, uh, we have talked about the number, the symbolic number seven. We saw it pop up a lot just in what we just read. 
Seven, seven spirits, seven stars, seven golden lampstands, or seven lampstands, and um, also uh, seven, what was the other seven? Seven churches. There we go. All right, so you guys are tracking with that. That's good. So those four things, we see seven repeated four times throughout this passage. So what does seven refer to? You may have seen it on the chart there, but is there a place where we see seven in the biblical story in the Old Testament in particular? All the way in Genesis, right? Go all the way back to Genesis. God tells us that he created the world in how many days? Right? Seven days. And from that point forward, which is really the beginning of the story, all the way forward, every time the number seven is picked up, we see it happen, for instance, in the Old Testament temple system. It's res- it's, it is represented as fullness or completeness. And so when we get to the book of Revelation and we see these sevens repeated all the way through, Yes, this letter is being written to seven churches that actually existed in seven churches or seven cities in history in the first century. But this is also meant to communicate to us the complete message of God's fullness to all the churches, past, present, and future. The seven lampstands, which represent the presence of God, represent the full presence of God manifest through his church in the world and all the rest. And then even when we get to a place like Revelation 5, we're going to see John's vision of Jesus as the lamb who is on the throne. And we're told that this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Horns which represent power, eyes which represent wisdom and knowledge. And so what you see is that John is telling us that this is the lamb who was slain. This is Jesus, the one who is fully and completely powerful. He is all-powerful, and he is all-knowing, all-wise. And so we see that all over the book of Revelation. Now here's the thing, is that this is more than just forcing interpretation on symbols. The book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible for a reason. As we read through it, we're supposed to understand that there's a bunch that comes before this. And just like dropping into a book in the last chapter without having, to re- having read the first part of the book, or dropping into a movie in the last 15 minutes and having not seen the first two hours of the movie, it can be confusing at times if we don't do our work to understand where it fits in the story. And so, let's say you're not an Old Testament scholar, so that when you see these images, they are confusing to you, because you don't know exactly where they're coming from and exactly what they're pointing to. Does that mean that you can't understand the book of Revelation? Well, it makes it a lot harder, I'm just going to be honest with you, (laughs) on the one hand. But at the same time, uh, that's going to be part of my job, to work through this as we go through this series, and I would hope that uh, it encourages you to do your own research as well. But beyond that, we have been given in this first chapter, it's almost like God kind of knew we needed this, a lens through which to view this book, and it's in the first chapter that we just read. And I want to close with this, because this is going to be the proper interpretive lens that sets a lens for us to see the rest of the book of Revelation. It's set up in the very first vision. And here are three things that we need to know and remember when it comes to an interpretive lens for Revelation. First of all, This vision is all about, and this book is all about the gospel. You know, it starts as many New Testament letters actually do. John writes and he says, grace and peace to you. You may recognize that from the same way that Paul often writes his letters to the churches, grace and peace uh, to the church that he's writing to. And what he's saying ultimately is that, presenting to us, is that this is all about the gospel work of Jesus, and this is all about reminding us about the gospel work of Jesus. Because, of course, grace and peace are cornerstones of the gospel of Jesus on our behalf. In other words, it's the grace of God through Jesus that has given us peace and reconciliation with God. And of course, the deeper meaning of that word peace, shalom. And so, 
this book, this letter that's being written in, in Revelation ties to the same purpose in which all of the other New Testament letters actually have as well, which is to remind us of the gospel and to remind us of the implications of the gospel as we live faithfully right now as the church today. So it falls in that line. And we should assume the same thing that is happening in all those other New Testament letters is happening here. The writer wants to remind us of that the fact that the gospel is true and, and, and the implications for what it means that we live this out together. Secondly, this vision is undeniably Christocentric. It's all about, in other words, it's all about Jesus. As we noted earlier, there are 20 different references to who Jesus is just in this section. And it, and it comes to us almost as kind of being overboard, almost overbearing, and that's the point. The point is, ultimately, that Jesus is the point. And that's consistent with the story of the Bible itself. As we look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is about longing for and looking forward to a Messiah who was promised who would come. And then when Jesus arrives, we have the New Testament. The New Testament is all about pointing back to Jesus' first coming and pointing forward to his second coming. So all of Scripture is about Jesus, and so it makes sense that this last book, of course, would be about Jesus as well. And that's what we see in this very first uh, a vision, that what John sees, the first discernible character that he sees in the vision is the person of Jesus himself. He is the main character of this vision. He is the main character of this book. And any interpretation that leads us away from seeing Jesus as the point of revelation is not in line with the interpretive lens that's being set up here. And we'll approach and we'll see some of those as we move forward together. But these symbols are meant to wake us up to the reality that Jesus is the point and the gospel is really true. And then finally, as we said before, this vision and this book directs us to a response of both faithfulness and to worship. To trust Jesus and to give him the proper honor and glory and devotion that he deserves. Again, John's initial reaction should mirror, in a lot of ways, what we experience as we go through this book, and we're going to see it happen over and over again with all of the characters who are the faithful ones in uh, this book, is that they fall at the feet of Jesus and worship every time they see him. And the vision that John sees, he sees of Jesus. And Jesus is in so much glory in front of him that his natural reaction is to fall at his feet. It reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians, that when we see Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This is exactly what we see playing out in the book of Revelation. We just sang the song earlier. Lord, I just want you. Every, nothing else will do. You don't owe me anything. I just want you. And I want to fall at your feet as a result. This is exactly what worship looks like in Revelation. And so the perspective of Revelation is a lot like the rest of the Bible. And it makes sense because this is the culmination of the biblical story. It's not the weird stepchild of the scriptures. And even though John Calvin once said that he couldn't see Jesus in this, I think as we have discovered today, this book is all about Jesus. It's almost like, how can you not see Jesus in this first chapter? John Calvin's been dead a long time, and uh, I'm pretty confident that he's with Jesus right now. And I think if you were to ask John Calvin, he probably would change his mind about those comments that he made about Revelation while he was, while he was on the earth. But at the same time, the point is that this is all about Jesus. And we're, we're getting started into this series, so I hope when... I hope that you realize when I say that it's all about Jesus, um, I know that that can sound cliche at times. Um, in some ways, I almost hope that it does because that means we're saying it as much as we should be. We should be saying it every week. When we talk about Scripture, this is all about Jesus. But one of the beautiful things about the book of Revelation is not only does it show us that it is all about Jesus, but it tells us why it is all about Jesus. 
which makes this book so immensely powerful. And so to see Revelation clearly, you have to see Jesus. This, is not, this book is not about clearly seeing some antichrist, which as I said last week, that word's not even in the book of Revelation. It's not about clearly seeing even the signs of the times, uh, whatever that may mean by how we say that. It's about clearly seeing Jesus. And our prayer should be, Lord Jesus, help us to see you more clearly through this book because he is the point of it in the end. And I want to leave us with some of the words from theologian G.K. Beale to remind us of the blessing as we continue, the blessing of continuing through the book of Revelation together and really what we should be looking to get out of it as we continue into the next couple chapters. He says this, Continued reading of the book will encourage genuine saints to realize that what they believe is not strange and odd, but truly normal from God's perspective. John refers to true unbelievers in the book as earth dwellers because, of their, because their ultimate home is on the transient earth. They cannot trust in anything except what their eyes see and what their physical senses perceive. They are permanently earthbound, trusting only in earthly security, and will perish with this old order at the end of time when the corrupted cosmos is finally judged and passes away. On the other hand, Christians are like pilgrims passing through this world. As such, they are to commit themselves to the revelation of God in the new order, so as progressively to reflect and imitate his image and increasingly live according to the values of the new world, not being conformed to the fallen system, its idolatrous images, and associated values. I think that's a good thought to close this week out on. I'm sure many times we may think that what the Bible says is a little strange sometimes, and that's not just talking about the book of Revelation. Uh, for, for a lot of us, the beliefs and values of Christianity, we realize, are at odds with the world that we live in. Sometimes they're at odds with what we want to do and how we want to live personally. But what the book of Revelation reminds us of is, again, we are called to live from the new world, even while we live in the old world that is passing away. So these beliefs and values, in other words, are not meant to fit into this world. They are meant to be, in, in a lot of cases, at odds with the world that we live in. And they will expose, as much as we follow Jesus faithfully, they will expose those values for what they are. The ones that are crumbling and the ones that are falling away. The book of Revelation is deliberate, again, in its otherworldly approach to remind us over and over again that we were meant for a different world, that we are pilgrims passing through on the way home. And that home is this new world that's being presented to us through these amazing, wonderful, scary, difficult uh, visions of the apocalypse. But in the end, of course, what seems so odd and difficult for us is actually normal from God's perspective. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would continue to open our eyes as we talk about even what it means for uh, the things that we see and the way that we perceive them to be um, at odds with many times the way that you see them. We know, we, uh, I think our first reaction is to know that we need your help in understanding this. And so Lord, we ask for continued wisdom. We ask that you would open our eyes. And above all, Lord, we ask that as we go through this series that you would continue to remind us of what you have taught us in this very first chapter. It's going to be easy as we move on, especially in the chapters that come, to forget what we have seen here in the beginning. But in the end, this is the most important interpretive key to Revelation, that it is truly all about Jesus. It is, the one who is, it is about the one who is said here is the eternal king, is the alpha and the omega, is the ruler of the kings of all the earth, is the one who has given himself 
for us so that we might be reconciled to him. He is the Almighty. Lord, in the end, he is the one who is the Lamb who was slain on our behalf, but is also the one who is the Son of Man, ruling at the right hand of the Father, who will judge sin and evil once and for all from his good creation. And so, Lord, may we place our trust in him, Lord, as just we said earlier. This is our prayer. Lord Jesus, may we see you more clearly through this book. Give us blinders if we need them (laughs) to just focus completely on the revelation of who Jesus is. And as it's presented through this book, Lord, we pray that it would be an encouragement to our faith and that um, it would feed our souls. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. All right, thanks again for being here this morning, guys. Uh, As we close, we have uh, the Hallmans, uh, Dana and Doreen over here as our prayer partners. So if you uh, need prayer as we break uh, and leave from here, they would be happy to pray with you. We also have prayer cards that are located at our table as you leave here this morning. You write down your request, drop it in the offering stands as you leave here this morning. We make sure that we, we, we get triple coverage on those prayer requests. We pray as a staff, we pray as a prayer team, we pray as an elder team each week for those as we get the privilege of joining you in prayer. One last thing we want to remind you, we're going to break right now, but at 12.15, we're going to come back together and we're going to have our student pastor candidate uh, here with his wife. We're going to have an opportunity to hear from him and then uh, uh, participate in a Q&A time if you would like to be a part of that. You don't have to be a, a parent of a student to be here. Again, this is going to be somebody we're hiring to bring on our church staff. They'll be one of our staff pastors, so it may be of interest to you to want to be here and to see that. If not, have a great afternoon, and we'll see you uh, next week. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.